Okay, y'all, we are, you still get the title here, we're doing beginnings. We started last week with an introduction to Mark, um, and we'll be preaching through Mark. As I mentioned last week, I'm just somewhat excited about doing this. Uh, I have not preached, there has not been a gospel preached in Redeemer uh, for about 10 years. Now, certainly there's been passages of the gospels preached, Uh, The third book in the Bible preached as a church together was John. The first was Colossians. The second was that exciting, thrilling, everybody knows the point of the book Habakkuk. And then the third was John. Uh, And so now we're we're looking at Mark. It's been a while. Uh, I I think we rightfully can come in with some wonderful expectations that God is going to work and he's going to move uh, as we look at the life of Christ. All right, here's what we're going to do. Um, the FBI recently released a report of internet fraud during uh, 2011. Uh, and in this uh, report, it noted that there were 5,663 complaints over romance scams. Uh, now, those of you that uh, are concerned that Uh, You could uh, be romance scammed. I will tell you what those are here in a minute. But what's fascinating about romance scams is that there were over $50 million worth just last year alone earned or worked for in romance scams. Uh, So for some of you, you need a career. There you go. What's a romance scam? For those of you that are concerned, well, it starts with a romance scammer. And the romance scammer, he pursues the social networking websites, Facebook, Twitter, whatever else is out there today, uh, and also the dating sites. I don't know what those are. Um, but they search them and they look for someone who's ready for a love relationship. And so what they do is they find someone that's interested and they use poetry, they use gifts, they use their charm, and they use sweet nothings to convince this person uh, that they're in a love relationship. Now, once this person has been convinced that they're in a love relationship, um, the scammer effectively uses empathy by telling this person of great personal tragedy and loss that they've experienced in their life. And then, of course, you know what's coming. And then they, they ask for money. Now, surprisingly, stunningly, the average amount that a scammer gets, the average is $8,900 from their victims, okay? Now, this $50 million that we're talking about last year, this is only reported cases. <laughs> so how many of you, if you got scammed by a romancer, are actually going to report it? So that's probably maybe doubled, $100 million last year from romance scammers? Here's the point. Everyone, everyone is struggling for good news. For some of us, we're struggling for good news in a love relationship. For others of us, we're struggling for the good news of the dream job and the dream girl and the dream family. And the dream success story. And then still for others of us, we're struggling for the successful Christian experience or just to survive through the next paycheck, right? 
But one thing's clear as we approach this text, and one thing's clear in the mind of Mark, and one thing's clear in all of scriptures, is that every single human being is struggling for good news. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared. What's fascinating, again, I cannot tackle everything in the text, but you know that, that there's, there's barely a comma between that passage and then John just shows up out of nowhere. He just appears, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Uh, That's not there just because they were interested in style in those days. That is there because... Everyone was looking for an Elijah figure. That was the expectation of Israel at the time. And this is exactly what Elijah wore. And exactly what Elijah ate. And exactly where Elijah lived. Okay? And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. And we thank you that good night. We come here not because we've done something and worked our way here. And we come here not trusting in our own effort to actually find you and to see you, to actually learn how to trust you. We come here um, because of good news. Uh, So, oh Lord, would you unleash the power of your gospel upon us? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everyone is struggling for good news, but we settle for good advice. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was considered by many the last of the great Puritans. He kind of describes the difference between good news and good advice. He says it this way, advice is counsel about something that hasn't happened yet, but you can do something about it. Uh, News is a report about something that has happened which you can't do anything about because it's been done for you. All you can do is respond to it. And then he goes on to illustrate it. In fact, he actually takes the ancient Near Eastern word meaning for the word we're going to look at. And he takes the Greco-Roman word meaning for the word gospel. Uh, And he uses this illustration. He says, let's suppose that a king goes into battle to defend his land from an invading enemy. Uh, And he wins. (laughs) He wins. The kingdom's at stake. Life is on the line. The whole city is waiting. They watch the army go out, and then he wins. And the king sends a runner. He sends a messenger. And this messenger comes running happily, bearing good news 
a good report of victory from the battlefield. He comes in running probably breathlessly saying, it's over. It's done. It's accomplished. It's finished. Uh, The enemy's defeated. Rejoice. You know, live. Live in the wonder of being a free people. But, let's say the king and his army loses. He doesn't send out heralds, and he doesn't send out a report and good news. He sends out military advisors. And the military advisors go back to the capital city, and they say, uh, archers here, cavalry there, fight for your life. Religion is good advice. Obey these rules. Follow these rituals. Avoid these sins. Do all these things. And you'll connect with God. Or if you're more in an Eastern mindset, you'll connect with this unifying force of good in the universe. Or you'll connect with a sense of happiness and you'll connect with a state of peace and you'll find yourself and you'll find the meaning of life. Marksman here. Calvary there. Fight for your life. Selfish living in relationships is good advice. I mean, obey your desires. Follow your wants and your comforts. Your Desire for emotional and physical comfort and ease. Do this. Avoid discomfort. Avoid displeasure. Do all these things. And you'll meet your needs. You'll have a full life. Again, you'll find yourself. Marksman here. Calvary there. Fight for your life. Needing the approval of others is good advice. I mean, obey your performance. Follow your image. Avoid rejection. Avoid disapproval of others. Do all these things. And you'll find acceptance and love. You'll find the justification for your being and the approval in the eyes of others. I mean, you'll get a full life. Marksman here, cavalry there, fight for your life. We all struggle for good news, but we settle for good advice. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. Gospel literally means good news. Or if you want to place it in the ancient Near East, this is how they would read it. Or if you want to place it in Hebrew or in Greco-Roman times, this is how they would read it. The gospel or the good news, the good report of victory 
from the battlefield. So what Mark is doing here, right at verse 1, what he's doing right at the beginning of his book to actually frame the whole book, to actually frame for you and me what must be seen or we won't get the book. If you miss verse 1, you miss the book. And what he puts before us in verse 1 and right at the beginning of the book is that we got to realize this whole book is a good report of victory from the battlefield. That this whole book is actually the picture, the story of a cosmic invasion from the victory of a true king who wins on the battlefield. And so there's no more marksmen here, cavalry there, fight for your lives. There's no more good advice on how to save yourself and how to find yourself and how to fix yourself and how to cleanse yourself and how to improve yourself and how to find and be the perfect one. There's no more good advice. You know what there is? There's good news. It's already been done. The battle is over. Salvation is accomplished. The historical events of your meaning, your salvation, your identity, your cleansing, your redemption has happened. Good news. And you can only believe it. You can't do anything about it. I can't do anything about it because it's been done for us. All we can do is believe it. All we can do is, is actually rest in it. All we can do is say, I, I, I will rely upon it. All we can do is rejoice in the good news of the freedom that's already been completed and won for you and achieved for you. That's what we do. So what specifically is this good news? Well, the 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 rest of Mark is going to unpack it. I mean, look what it says here. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. Christ and Son of God are global words. But they are describing what's happening here is that the good news is the victory of a person. Notice that. It's the gospel of Jesus. It's the good news of victory of a person. It's the victory of a king that's won. It's a person. It's not even a set of ideas. It's not even a set of beliefs. The gospel is a person. And this person's victory, this true king's victory in Christ and the Son of God are global words that Mark's going to continue to stuff with unbelievable meaning through every event, through every teaching, through everything that Jesus does. And as he keeps stuffing those words with beauty and radiance and splendor, every time he does, the power of God. Life. Good news. No more cavalry here. Marksmen there. Fight for your lives. It's been done. So this much we know from this passage, because we're looking at this passage 1 through 8. Christ in the Greek. That's a Greek term. Messiah would be the Hebrew term. Son of God in the ancient Near East and Son of God in the Hebrew all refer to some kind of king. That much we know. And so what Mark is doing from the very beginning is he's saying, here's the content of the good news. The true king has come. 
In fact, when you look at verses 2 through 3, you see Isaiah talks about him before he comes here. And they're actually, in those verses 2 through 3, those are old, that's the mixture of three Old Testament texts. You get that? It's fascinating because it's like this cannibalism of three texts. It's actually taking the ideas and the same words, but even mixing them around and applying them to different people. It's kind of like, and that's where people get into this text. And when they get into Mark, they go crazy. Scholars go crazy. Ah, there was an editor here. Uh, Yeah, it was Mark by the Holy Spirit. That's the editor. But what's happening here is they're taking three Old Testament texts. But notice what text they're taking. They're taking a text from Exodus. The premier event of rescue in all the Old Testament. There is not a greater picture of redemption in the whole Old Testament. And what they did is he took this Exodus passage because it represents all the books of the history of Israel, which is called the law. And then he mixes it with the greatest prophet, which is Isaiah representing all the prophets. But just in case you, you wonder, what about these guys that have the weird last names, the Habakkuk's and the Malachi's? And the upper respiratory type diseases names. They're there, right? He brings in Malachi. And he mixes Malachi because it represents these new breed of prophets that arise when Israel's in exile. So all of the law and all of the prophets before exile, after exile, spoke of the king coming. And Mark says... He's here. He's marching to the battlefield when you're in real time right now in the text. So in other words, the whole Bible, the whole Old Testament, all of God's word that he has revealed says the king is coming up to that time. So Mark is saying the true king has finally come, but notice what else Mark talks about in 1 through 8 about the good news. He says the true king has finally come, but he's come to do something very specific, and that is to defeat the death grip of the current dark powers in the world. I mean, place is a big deal to Mark. Do you know what place is highlighted in verses 1 through 8? It's highlighted everywhere. It starts with place. So if you see a place in Mark, Mark is saying pay attention because this place is not here randomly. This place is loaded with meaning. This place is loaded with symbolism. And the place that Mark starts with is what? The wilderness. So Mark starts in the wilderness. Everything starts in the wilderness. John the Baptist starts in the wilderness. The first people that Mark mentions are in the wilderness. In 9 through 11, Jesus is introduced in the wilderness. And he confronts the dark powers in the wilderness. You see, wilderness in Israel's history is loaded with meaning. I mean, it's the, it's the wastelands of Judea, right? The wind and the heat seared that area and turned it into a wasteland. It was completely uninhabitable. It, was, it didn't have the kind of place that could support life. But it was more than just a physical wasteland. The wilderness in Israel's history symbolized and revealed the true nature of the human condition. It's a spiritual wasteland. What happened in Israel's wilderness 
Well, they carved idols. God replacements and substitute saviors to provide for them what only God could provide. Yeah, we do that too. They craved their physical and emotional comfort and ease. They craved meat, right? In place of their ultimate comfort and their ultimate peace. Yeah, we do the same thing. Uh, They trusted in people instead of God. Whether it was for good things because they trusted in people because they thought they had some sort of power or might to give to them or defend them, their leaders, or they feared them, Pharaoh, the giants. Yeah, we do that too. They continually doubted God and continually doubted his goodness. Yeah, we do too. And so what Mark is saying is that the true king has come and he's gone to your spiritual wasteland. And he's going to fight for you. And he's going to break the death grip of the present power of sin in our lives. A lot of ink is spilled over John the Baptist's baptisms. I mean, good night. Every time I see that now in the commentary, I'm just like, whoop, whoop, whoop. Um, what was his baptism? How did he do it? Did he dunk? Did he sprinkle? Right? And of course, John the Baptist is the first Baptist. Please. Please. Really? Really? Okay. That's a great commentary. Good commentary. I think I'll... Push that one aside. The key to understanding John's baptism is this. He proclaims it. Do you see what he's doing? Look at verse 4. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, he's not telling them good advice. He's telling them good news. He's heralding a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's telling them good news. So John is the first messenger. He's the first herald from the battlefield onto the world stage. The very first one come fresh from the battle, come fresh from the victory, come fresh from all of Old Testament promises of the coming one, bridging now to the arrival of the one who is. And he says, victory. He cries out into the wilderness. He goes into the wilderness, he goes into the wasteland, he goes into those dark places, and he goes and he says, listen, friends, good news, it's over. It's achieved, it's accomplished. Your sins are forgiven. Now, we're in real time, so we're, we're back in the movie, so we, get the, we know the whole story, and even when this is written, it's already done. The king has come. The king's done it. But now we've kind of zoomed in while it's happening, while it's unfolding. We're watching the movie, so you can imagine you're John, and you come to these folks, and what do you say? He cries out in the wilderness, victory, but when he cries out, he says, the king has come. And he's come. 
And he's proclaiming the good news of the forgiveness of sin. And all you can do, if you're one of the first people that are hearing it, all you can do is believe it. Rest in it. Rely in it. Rejoice in it. All you can do is repent from your efforts of trying to fight for yourself, save yourself, cleanse yourself. The language of today, find yourself. Get life. You can repent, turn away from good advice, and move to good news. Those who did were baptized by John. Now, verse 1 through 8 also tells us that the true king has finally come. We get that. To defeat the death grip of the current dark powers, mainly, namely sin. Now, there is another one. And we're going to see that next week. The dark power. It's fascinating when Jesus shows up, when the king comes to invade and he comes to set free and he comes to win a battle, he enters his enemy head on. That's how Mark introduces him. You want to know who this king is? He's a warrior. That's who he is. So if you have visions of, of palm trees and grapes and beautiful girls feeding you, that's not the image here. The image here that Mark wants to communicate to you is a bloody sword. That's the image of a superior king. All right, so he tells us, The true king's finally come to defeat the death grip, and notice what happens. He does it. He wins. He achieves victory. Where do we see this? Verse 7, and he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I. He's literally saying, After me comes the stronger one, who alone can do it and will do it. Still not convinced? Verse 8. I have baptized you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit throughout the whole Bible and now into the New Testament are the words of God that are now new on the page in the light of Jesus. The whole reality of the Holy Spirit is a, is a vision or a reality of the coming of the kingdom of God. He will baptize you with the kingdom of God. He's basically saying he will baptize you with victory. You now can live in the freedom and the joy of being forgiven and cleansed and justified and accepted and loved and transformed. You're free. Now notice the response. This is how we're going to end because we've got to get going here. We've got a special thing to do here in a couple minutes. Notice the response to the future messenger of the good news. The first messenger of the good news. Notice the response to him. Now, this is a response of good news, that a true king has come and victory has been claimed from the battlefield. Notice the response, verse 4 and 5. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. This is an enormous response. All of Jerusalem, all of Judea. Now, there's a little hyperbole here. 
It's not each and every individual in Jerusalem, each and every individual in Judea. But this is an enormous response. And notice the picture here, too. This is not a, like, we tend to. I do. When I first read this, I, did I do this on Monday? I don't know if I did. I might have, because I was kind of in a sour mood on Monday. No, Tuesday. I was in a sour mood. I might have read it like this. This is good. This is an exciting time. They are not going, I've got to go confess my sins. <laughs> Baptize me, John. I'm a worm. No. <laughs> Remember what's happening here. This is a response to good news. They confess their sins and get baptized because of the good news. Not to get the good news. This is not good advice. This is good news. And so the, it, the, the picture here is excitement. You can, it's electric. It's like going, I mean, gosh, how do you, how do you even do it? Well, it'd be kind of like the, if you were to go to Jerusalem in this day, it would be like going to a small town in Texas on a Friday night. No one's there. It's empty. Everyone's at the football game. It's electric. It tingles. I mean, the hair standing on the back of your head. You're light in your step. You can't wait to get there. You know, you might put down your dinner that you're making. You gather the kids and you get in the, you know, the camel bus, whatever it was, and everybody goes to the wilderness. When you hear the gospel that it's all been done for you, that a historical event has happened, that salvation has been accomplished, that your sins are forgiven, what do you do? You go to him. You go out to him. You confess your sins to him. You repent of all your good advice, all your own efforts of trying to save yourself, all your strategies of trying to find yourself in your life. You repent of that stuff. You read God's word, you pray, you learn to cultivate community, you receive more teaching, you worship with God's people. You love and serve others. You obey the Ten Commandments. And you participate. You become a messenger now. You participate in the redemptive drama. Now, I want you to listen carefully to this because this is very important. It's part of the application. Are you ready? You can do all these things in response to good advice. You can read your Bible, and you can pray, and you can go to public worship, and you can get in a small group, and you can do a mission trip, and you can sit here every Wednesday night getting teaching, and you can get involved in CE, and you can have family worship and devotions, and you can sacrificially tithe, and sacrificially give, 
And you can do so because of good advice. Because the military advisor says, listen, this is how you connect with God. This is how you find your life. This is how you gain acceptance. This is how you become a fulfilled person. This is how peace gets there. This is how you fix yourself. You do so by doing those things. So the person that hears the good news and responds, and the person that hears good advice and responds, the response could look exactly the same. But when you pull away the response and then you move down into the core root of what it's coming out of, one is coming out of good news that it's already been done for you. And the other is coming out of a root that it's all up to you. This one, good news produces joy. This one, fear and pride. Because it's all up to you. So what's the point? I mean, we're now in the mark. Here's the point, verse 1 through 8. I saved the point to the end. We've been building to the point. Here's the point. Everyone struggles for good news. And only Jesus has it. Go to him. And watch joy arise. And fear get pushed out. And pride get pushed out of your life. Amen.